You're listening to episode 19 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On this episode, we review Oceans 8, as well as several other films that we have viewed over our two-month hiatus. We look at the career of Kate Blanchett and determine her Mount Rushmore of performances. Our Power Rankings looks at the best coffee scenes in movies. And for our Oscar trivia today, we look at the 1994 Oscars. All this and more on the Almost Sideways podcast. It's good to be back. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for lunch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes. We are go for launch. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Almost Sideways podcast. Welcome back. It has been a while. We had a long hiatus of a couple months, but we are back and uh, bringing you everything movies once again. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Join me as always, our Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Um, how's it going, guys? It's been a while. It's been awesome, Terry. I've been on a drunken binge with Alexander Ovechkin, touring the country with uh, our Stanley Cup, getting wasted in every city. Uh, that seems like quite the party they're having. Oh yeah. But what what's what's a what's bigger, the party that that, that Ovechkin's having with the cup, or the party that would have happened if Vegas had won the cup? Ooh, that's a great question. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> How about partying with Ovechkin in Vegas? That would be awesome. There we go. There we go. We've been ce- yeah. uh, I, celebrating uh, legalized gambling. Yeah. Absolutely. Too bad we don't live in Delaware. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. Watching a lot of good movies. Excited to do this podcast again. Uh, the uh, the hiatus was uh, painful, but I mean, we're back. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you for being patient with us through our uh, through our hiatus. Uh, we had to take a couple months off. Uh, this is kind of a side venture for us that we uh, do as a hobby, and uh, a couple of us are school teachers. And when we hit the last month of the school year, we uh, we just saw no time in our in our schedules for uh, for putting together this podcast. But it's the summer now, and so we're back. Um, as always, you can find us all over the internet. Please. Uh, Find us on iTunes, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, find us at almostsideways.com, which has also been on a little bit of a hiatus, but hopefully uh, in this next week we'll be getting a, a whole lot of content there um, with all the movies we've been watching um, recently. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at om, uh, om, search for almostsideways.com. You can also find several of us on Twitter. Uh, but let's not delay anymore. Let's hop into our movie reviews. I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances. I did not really like this film at all. Movie reviews. And of all the movies over the last two months that uh, that we've seen and that have come out, we decided to pick one that we were going to talk about together. Uh, that is one that we were kind of anticipating and kind of curious about, and that is Ocean's 8 the uh, fourth edition in the uh, the ocean universe. Um, and this time, the whole crew is female. Uh, Zach, why don't you tell us a little more about it and what you thought? Sure. So uh, Ocean's 8 is not directed by Steven Soderbergh. He serves as an executive producer. Um, but it 
takes place, as you said, Terry, in the cinematic universe, the same cinematic universe as the first three Oceans movies. Um, that means that uh, it probably takes place sometime after the events of Oceans 13, and uh, we may see some of the uh, original Oceans, all-male Oceans gang, pop up from time to time in this movie. I won't say who. But uh, the action picks up uh, when uh, Danny's sister, Debbie, has been released from jail. And doesn't this sound familiar, if you've seen the original Oceans 11? Uh, once released, she uh, immediately goes into a life of recidivism and uh, starts perpetrating crimes and meeting up with her old pals like Brad Pitt. Oh, I mean Kate Blanchett. And uh, from Kate Blanchett... she's not eating a sandwich. That's true. Or, or uh, you know, uh, crab cocktail. Um, but... Uh, she is blonde. And so, um, you know, they really shouldn't let the oceans out of jail. That's, I think, one of the lessons learned in this movie. Uh, but anyway, so Oceans 8 picks up where, uh, uh, Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett, uh, are looking to rob, this time not a casino, but a lavish and ornate, uh, diamond necklace from the Met Gala in New York City, and the Met Gala is that annual event, iconic fashion event, and so, um, they, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's shocking to hear, but, uh, they get, uh, eight people to join up with them. Um, and some of these co-conspirators include Aquafina and Min, uh, Mindy Kaleig and uh, Sarah Paulson, Anne Hathaway and Rihanna and Helena Bonham Carter, to name a few. And together they make a motley crew, but a pretty uh, entertaining one. Each one of them kind of specializes in their own uh, specialty. It's not exactly a corollary to the Oceans movies, but, um, you know, you sort of get the idea. Um, and uh, they devise this great heist. Now, whether you're going to like this movie or not really depends on two factors. The first factor is if you are a fan of the original Oceans movies, um, because if you're not, uh, you should probably avoid this one. I think the other factor is if you are a fan of... If, you're, if you can tolerate retreads that have the exact same formula as the movie that they're based off of. And in this case, um, this movie, Ocean's 8, is very similar structurally to Ocean's 11. I mean, they're almost scene-for-scene scene duplicates. But for me, there was enough variation, enough difference, and enough interest in the characters to sort of satisfy that. I went into this movie kind of skeptical. I was not really a fan of the uh, all-female Ghostbusters retread. Um, and and I'd like to think it's not because I'm sexist. I just didn't think it was that funny. I thought the actresses were are really funny. It just wasn't great material. This time, the material, I thought, really worked. Uh, I thought the, the dialogue was good and crisp. I thought the characters were well-developed. And I thought all the actresses were, were pretty amazing in it. Really funny. I think if I were to name an MVP of this movie, it would be a co-MVP between Anne Hathaway and Rihanna, both who are phenomenal in this movie. So... Um, it's directed by Gary Ross, who has a deft hand here, and he's, of course, directed good movies like Pleasantville and The Hunger Games. So in the end, uh, even though I was skeptical, and even in the first 20 minutes when I sort of recognized it was going to be a, a sort of a, a, a duplicate structurally, but not necessarily in terms of content, um, I was dubious at first, but once I got into it, I, I enjoyed it. It moved in, along nicely. It was a nice, breezy two hours, and I ultimately give three stars and a thumbs up to Ocean's 8. All right, Todd, what about you? What did you think? Yeah, I, I echo a lot of what uh, Zach said. Uh, I, I think the these uh, revamping of the male-centric genres with female casts hasn't really worked so far until this point. Like, yeah, like you said, the Ghostbusters one was really bad. And, like, I mean, I even kind of hated Bridesmaids. And uh, 
But uh, this is, might actually be the second best Oceans movie. Uh, I think the actresses are fun, and the movie is slick and has a cool visual flair. Gary Ross, it's rare that he makes a movie, and so like taking on something like this is really interesting, and it looks really cool and feels really fun. I think it's a little predictable how it all comes together, but the actual process of watching it is, is still uh, fun to watch. And... I don't know, it's just really good entertainment, and uh, I had it as the middle part of a triple feature at the theater with Hereditary and Upgrade, so this was a nice uh, change of pace for that. Uh, but ultimately, it's a three-star movie, it's it's good, I could watch it again, and I would have no problem sitting through it. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you guys. Uh, I was kind of skeptical going in, but uh, if you if you like the genre, if you like the, the uh, concept of a heist film, then you're going to like Ocean's 8. Um, I was kind of surprised that it was directed by Gary Ross, that they didn't work harder to try and uh, find a female director for an all-female Ocean's 8, especially with the climate uh, Hollywood is in right now. Uh, I don't think it took anything away from the film. I just thought it was kind of an an interesting thing. Um, After I watched Ocean's 8, I had to... um, I had to compare it with a film that came out last year in Logan Lucky, which was a Soderbergh film and was a heist film. And I remember watching it and on this podcast a while back, we talked about how it was kind of a hillbilly oceans movie. And um, it was trying to be an oceans movie, but it didn't really work. Oceans 8 is what Logan Lucky wanted to be. It wanted to relate enough to the oceans movies that people could realize what it was. However, at the same time, have its own thing and be quality at the same time. So uh, I think this one did that very well. It fits perfectly in the Oceans franchise. Um, And like you guys said, I I enjoyed watching it. I would watch it again. Uh, I give it a solid three stars. Yeah, and one of the things that I really liked about it, uh, I sort of have to add as a personal side note, uh, during our super long hiatus on the Almost Sideways podcast, I was actually in New York City, and uh, I actually went to the Met, which is where the heist in this movie takes place, and I mean, I have to say, I thought it was actually really cool kind of seeing the different locations in in the Met as they uh as the action took place and you know it has to be said not all movies are set in actual locations and this movie for sure is set in new york city at the metropolitan museum of art it was cool seeing the different uh rooms and the the different um sets and uh even around new york city it's very authentic so i think that that adds to the realism of the movie and and was sort of just on a personal note kind of fun to see yeah absolutely agree absolutely agree all right so it sounds like we are all in agreement on this movie, which doesn't happen a whole lot, but uh, we all put it right in there at that three-star range. Uh, if you uh, can still find it in the theaters, go out there and find it, and if not, wait a couple months and uh, definitely see it when it comes out on, uh, on disc or on digital, whichever you prefer. Okay, so with uh, the rest of our movie reviews, it has been a while since we've talked to you guys. It's been about two months, and so what we decided to do is to kind of recap the last two months in film by each of us picking a movie that we saw that we loved and each of us picking a movie that we saw that we hated. And that is what we are going to get into now. So I think we're going to go through and we're each going to share the movie we loved and uh, and heap praises on it, and then we are... uh, all going to reveal the movie that we hated and talk crap about it. So, Todd, 
why don't you start us off with the movie that you loved from the last two months? Okay, so I uh, watched like random movies on streaming, and one of them I came across was a 2017 true crime documentary called Killing for Love, and it was one of the better uh, actual movie versions of a true crime documentary that I've seen in a long time. It was It's about the murder of Nancy and Derek Hasem in 1985 by her daughter, or their daughter Elizabeth, and her boyfriend Jans Soaring. And it was a big media thing when it happened, and uh, I, I, I didn't know anything about the, the story until I, I watched this movie. And uh, it's uh, the couple fled the country, and then they got arrested overseas for uh, check fraud, and then they brought, and then they were brought on trial in a really uh, bizarre circumstances. There's archival footage in this. There's voiceovers by Daniel Bruhl and Imogen Poots, and uh, an interview with Soaring, which completely changes how the outlook of the case. Uh, it has it has a, a, the feel of like the new wave of uh, true crime docs, sort of like the Jinx, but not quite as mind blowing. Although it there is like some game-changing things in the case that could actually uh, result in a retrial. And, uh, yeah, it's available on Hulu. It, it's a three-and-a-half-star movie, and uh, currently my number 13 of 2017. All right. I have not seen that movie. Have you, Zach? No, I haven't even heard of it. All right. That's what you got to love about the Almost Sideways podcast. You're going to come across some films that uh, you may not have heard of before, and now you have, so you can check them out. All right, I think I'm going to go next, and the movie I want to talk about that I love, um, I don't get to the, get to the theater uh, too often, um, but, and uh, especially once the summer months start, I see a lot of the blockbusters, and one, that I, one in particular that I wanted to talk about that was a big hit over the last two months was Deadpool 2. Uh, the sequel to the 2016 uh, Deadpool film, which I loved. It was actually in my top five of that year. Um, and the sequel was coming out um, with a new director, David Leach, and it was a film that had me very excited and very worried at the same time. Um, first, I loved the first one so much, I wanted to see more Deadpool. Um, but the first was great because of its originality and because we had never seen a character like Deadpool uh, in a film before, especially in a superhero film. And now that he'd been established, how are they going to keep it fresh? How are they going to keep it original? Um, now that we know who Deadpool is and the originality is kind of out of the bag a little bit. Um, however, they were able to do that. And the reason they were able to do that is because of the villain. Uh, Cable, played by Josh Brolin, who apparently is the only guy who's allowed to play a villain in 2018. Uh, as he also played Thanos in the Avengers film. Um, at the movie kind of drags along a little bit at the beginning um, as you're getting back into it, and it's what I was worried it would be at first. It's, it's Deadpool doing Deadpool things, and it's not original anymore because we've seen it. However, once Cable shows up, it breathes brand new life into, into the film and into uh, the character. Um, as the movie goes along, Deadpool ends up in training to be an X-Men, which is kind of hilarious in itself. And he took it on himself to protect and help a tormented kid that has incredible powers. Uh, when Cable shows up to try and kill the kid, Deadpool starts 
um, to try and protect him and starts the X-Force, which is his own dysfunctional version of the X-Men, which is kind of a big dumpster fire in a lot of ways. And it's the only way Deadpool would want to have it. Um, I had so much fun with this movie again because it's Deadpool, because they were able to keep it fresh and original, even though it was a sequel. Um, he's constantly making fun of the genre, making fun of himself, making fun of uh, not in himself as Deadpool and as Ryan Reynolds, uh, even to the point that uh, you have an opening credits role uh, a la James Bond with a theme song sung by the one and only Celine Dion. Um, it is, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you, uh, if you like Deadpool, you will like Deadpool too. I gave it a very high three stars. Yeah, I, I really love the trailer for Deadpool too, um, where they actually like interrupt the trailer to go into, uh, the bad CGI of it and he sort yeah. of makes fun of himself. <laughs> Yeah, oh. stuff like that actually makes me uh, kind of want to see the movie because I really hated the first one, but this one actually does look like it's better. So, Josh Brolin makes every movie better, right? Pretty much. Except for, uh, what is it, Jonah Hex? I think everyone forgot that movie existed until just now. You're welcome, America. Apparently you didn't forget. <laughs> So, so Terry, knowing that Todd didn't somehow inexplicably was one of you know maybe three people in the world that didn't like the first Deadpool, do you think he'd like this one more? Um, honestly, I have a feeling he'd probably have the exact same opinion about it. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's possible he'll like it more. I mean, it. I don't know. I don't know. There's I mean, also some really cool low-key, new characters. I did sort of. I, I like the second Hangover more than the first one, so. <laughs> Well, there you go. Fight so, words. I, I uh, if I tell him he's not gonna like it, all of a sudden he he'll come back with a positive review of it. So, uh, <laughs> Deadpool two. If you like Deadpool, check it out. Zach, what movie did you love? All right. Well, like Todd, the movie I picked is on uh, streaming. It's on Netflix. And uh, I love French films. I love French films about coming of age. And uh, this was a film uh, directed by one of the directors of one of my top 10 films last year, France. And this director is Francois Ozon. And the film is Young and Beautiful uh, from 2013. Um, I texted Todd immediately after watching this movie saying like, this is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Um, it's a great movie. It, it stars, uh, Marlene Vakf, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. And she plays this, uh, kind of high school, uh, girl who gets a lot of attention because she is, uh, let's hear it, young and beautiful. And so, um, the movie takes place over, it's actually split between seasons. It starts in summer, then goes to fall, winter, spring, etc. And each movement of the film is a little bit different. It kind of shows her gradual descent uh, into sexual promiscuity and ultimately becoming uh, a call girl, a prostitute. Um, if this sounds like sort of a Skinamax, like erotic thriller, uh, it is. And I'm sure in uh, an American director's hand, it's, it certainly would be. But this is a French film, and so it's tasteful and um, compelling and interesting and very actually literate and uh, intelligent. 
And so what happens over the course of the film, and I won't spoil too much, but uh, she finds herself flaunting her sexuality, making money off it, even though she's actually from sort of a privileged white collar class of people in Paris. And so she doesn't really need the the, the money, but she certainly likes the attention of it. And so um, like a lot of Ozan films, it's sort of coolly detached from its character. We sort of watch her and wonder, like, what is she doing? What is she thinking? She's so, sort of putting herself into dangerous circumstances and situations, but it's absolutely compelling to watch because, uh, at least for me as a viewer, I, I couldn't always understand her psychological motives, and I really wanted to. And the movie never really clearly lays it out. It's sort of a mystery, a lot like Swimming Pool, if you ever saw that film, which I know on the podcast we're, we're collective fans of. Anyway, the film is stylish. It's uh, pretty quick moving. It's only about an hour and a half. But um, you get exposed to this character who's really interesting and pretty unforgettable, particularly in the relationships that she develops with her clients. Uh, I would say the film is not exploitive. Um, it's not gratuitous in any way, but it's thoughtful, provoking, uh, and intelligent. Uh, a particularly realistic look at um, teenagers interested in sexuality. Uh, so Ozan is a great filmmaker. Marine Vox starred in his latest film, um, Double Lover, which I don't think has been released in the United States yet, but she this is a star-making role for her, and it's a really fascinating, compelling French film, and anytime you get those, then, you know, uh, I'll watch it, and this was a great film. One of Ozan's best. Todd, have you had a chance to watch that one yet? Uh, I have not, but I did look it up, and it is totally a Zach movie. And uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's it, it's a little deceptive because when you see it on Netflix, it looks like it's like just a porno, basically, or something soft core. But it's actually really, really intelligent because it's made by French people. All right, all right. So those are the films that we've watched that we've loved. Now let's get into the fun stuff. Let's get into the films that we've watched that we hated. Todd, give us your uh, your thumbs down review. All right, so this isn't a movie that I necessarily gave like a super bad grade to. I was just sort of disappointed by it. Uh, it was 2004 uh, Gavin O'Connor movie Miracle, which is the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team. And Herb Brooks, the, the coach, played by Kurt Russell, who leads the team to the big gold medal victory over Russia. Uh, I was always skeptical about the movie, which is why it took me so long to actually sit down and watch it. And, I mean, it was in the era of that, like, feel-good Disney corny sports movies, and this one might be actually the corniest of all of them, even more so than The Rookie and Remember the Titans. Uh, Every sports movie cliche is, is present. The performances are mostly pedestrian, and the story played out in a way that isn't... that was probably like so like more fake than it actually was from everything that i understand about the actual story and the score is loud and manipulative i i just really did not care for the movie it, it's not necessarily bad actually i gave it two stars because it is really entertaining and it, the one of the cool things is like the training sequences and stuff are really cool and they actually looks like real hockey because they use semi-pro hockey players in to as most of the team but overall the movie is just like it's kind of a drag, and I don't think Gavin O'Connor really knows what he's doing, like, with any movie, necessarily. I mean, I hated Warrior 2, but this, uh, yeah, this just not, it was not a good movie, and, I'm, and I wish I would have just continued to stay away from it. I have not seen Miracle either. Zach, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Sorry to say. How, how has it been 14 years and, and 
for the first one of us has actually seen that movie. I find that impressive. You guys obviously <laughs> had the same reservations I did. <laughs> well, I just exactly. have a, I have a policy against Kurt Russell films that don't involve, you know, drinking and boats and I when his shirt's on, you know. Yeah, you don't like Death Proof either, do you? No, but I love Captain Ron. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay, so my film that I hated, that I watched, I just caught in theaters this last week. Hotel Artemis, uh, a uh, big action thriller that that came to theaters um, over the last few weeks. This movie was written and directed by Drew Pierce. This is his first directorial uh, uh, venture uh, in, a, in a feature film. He'd done some shorts, but he had done a lot of, uh, of writing. He uh, provided the story for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. He wrote the script for Iron Man 3. He had done some decent filmmaking in the past, but this was his first directorial debut, and I think it would be better if he just stayed to uh, writing the script because... The story itself is actually okay, but the execution is horrific. So the story is Jodie Foster is a nurse, and she runs a top-secret members-only hospital for criminals that can be found in the Hotel Artemis. And this list of criminals includes people like Sterling K. Brown, Sophia Butella, Jeff Goldblum, and for some reason, Charlie Day. Um, When the city is in the midst of a riot. The Hotel Artemis goes, um, goes on and has a night like it had never had before. The uh, tagline for this movie is, no guns, no cops, no killing the other patients. And to make sure those rules are followed, Jodie Foster has a, uh, a medical assistant slash bouncer played by Dave Bautista, uh, who's actually a lot of fun in this movie. Um, the concept for the film is actually really good. I enjoyed the idea of it, and I enjoyed parts of it that showed that it could be an action film about this. The problem was the way the story was told. Um, they, uh, it was laughably bad at times. It tried way too hard to be both an action movie but also have a heart to it when it just needed to be like this adrenaline rush action movie at all times. Um, it seems like at a, for a while there, each character kind of takes turns having their tear-jerking monologue that uh, gives you all this backstory and side plot that is completely unnecessary to the film. Um, Jodie Foster, it, you know, she she goes into her whole history of why she came there. Who cares? Just just show the bad guys and the good guys and and the the bad guys and the more bad guys and uh, and all that leave that part out of it it was so bad and it would be like in the middle of an action scene someone would have to stop and have a two-minute monologue it was just terrible um if it had stuck to being what made it good and that is it being this action thriller it would have been a lot of fun uh instead i found myself laughing on my way out of the theater which is not the reaction i think the movie was going for uh i give it one and a half stars um yeah Really disappointing because it could have been so much better. Have any of you guys seen this? Uh, I w- actually wasn't all that familiar with it. I- I'd seen the title, but I didn't know about it. But I was just thinking, like, what 
Jodie Foster doesn't really make good movies anymore. I was lo- I'm looking at her list. In the last 20 years, I've given thumbs up to three movies that she was in, and only one <laughs> of which was she really the reason why it was good. Over the three. Uh, Carnage, Inside Man, and Panic Room. Interesting. Yeah, you I... Didn't, I you you didn't give a thumbs up to Elysium? Uh, n- no. Okay. <laughs> I hope you're being sarcastic when you said that. I thought Elysium sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it was okay. Um, I would have to sort of agree with what Todd said. And and Terry, it sounds like your review of the film is pretty similar to what a lot of critics have said about it, is that the premise is intriguing and interesting, but the execution is pretty poor. So I was close to going to it, but I don't know. I got a little too nervous about uh, seeing it for some of the reasons that you mentioned. Yeah, it, it it spirals out of control in a hurry. And it and you're right, it had so much going for it that when it uh when it became what it was, it was just it was a bummer. And it's really interesting because Jodie Foster gets all this praise for, you know, looking thoroughly through scripts and being very um you know picky about what she chooses. But uh you're right, Todd. I mean she hasn't had a really good track record the last twenty years. I mean, even the Beaver was pretty unwatchable at times. She directed that. Um, I'll go into the film that uh, I uh, I hated, um, and uh, this is a film that actually Todd and I were just discussing before the podcast, uh, so Todd, you can feel free to chime in anytime you want, but this is First Reformed uh, by Paul Schrader, the new film by Paul Schrader, and uh, ha- currently has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I find inexplicable. Uh, this is just basically uh, the cult of uh, Paul Schrader, I guess, people that just worship the name and not the product. But anyway, the film takes place in upstate New York, and it stars Ethan Hawke as a uh, small uh, small town pastor uh, or reverend, and um, he's sort of in a traditionally you know Paul Schrader esque sense grapples with issues of morality and spirituality and religion, and uh, in an overbearing um, you know uh, narration, sort of talks about his struggles. Um, what are his struggles? Well, it's somewhere between like Terrence Malick dialogue and Travis Bickle. You know, it sounds very much like a movie, not like anything realistic. Um, so he, uh, as he swigs down, um, his alcohol, you know, it, it gets, it, 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 it's sort of funny to watch. Um, I think Ethan Hawke tries to, de- tries to develop sort of an interesting attitude and quirkiness to the character, but, um, the problem is th- there's no real story here, or the story that does exist becomes sort of a predictable retread of Taxi Driver. That is, this, this reverence sort of develops these irks and these, the, this anger toward the rest of this sort of bureaucratic society around him like the like the church that uh the, the bigger church nearby the mega church that sort of sponsors his church and he gets upset at uh the the lack of advocacy for the environment after someone that he counsels um is also irritated about that um i told todd i feel like this movie uh is probably something a trader would have made in the 70s and he hasn't really thought about any new ideas in the last 40 years i mean concerns about the environment concerns about uh you know uh, institutions and conspiracies around them. I mean, this is a movie that probably should have starred Robert Redford and Mia Farrow in 1975. So I don't know why critics are liking this movie, except that it just has the Paul Schrader name attached to it. Um, it was a pretty severe disappointment, and by the end, it was pretty laughably bad. I mean, the characters are pretty underdeveloped, and some of the dialogue, and particularly one sequence with Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried toward the end of the film, you'll know the one I'm talking about if you see it, is just like, what are you smoking, Paul Schrader? I mean, wow, wake up, man. 
Yeah, I'm in complete agreement on that. It's uh, it's not good, and I don't think Schrader actually has much directing talent. Like, there's some of the some stuff in this movie that, yeah, I, he has some good ideas, but like, if if Scorsese was directing it, he never would have put up with some of the the nonsense that that goes on. I mean, I, I've seen a decent amount of Schrader movies, and I've never given a thumbs up to any of them. What, what so. about Mishima? Mishima's a great film. I, I love Mishima. But other than that... I have not seen that. I've seen one, two, three, four, five, six. Six of his movies. I don't even like Affliction. Oh, yeah, yeah. Affliction was pretty bad. He needs to lay off the weed. I think that's the problem, you know? <laughs> I, that's totally speculative, but... I don't know. <laughs> After watching this movie, you, you wonder. Why is Ethan Hawke so sad in all his movies? At least nowadays. That's a good question. It is. Poor Ethan Hawke. It's the environment. That's the problem. He's concerned about the decay of the trees and the oceans. At least in this yeah, movie. Just because uh, Amanda Seyfried's husband, who was had a shocking resemblance to Mark Ruffalo, uh, <laughs> told him about it. And then, so, Todd, did you notice that the lamp in her uh, living room, my wife pointed this out when we saw it, apparently there's a lamp in her living room that's a big, giant eyeball. And then we we did a Google search for it, and we saw a picture of it online. Because it was, like, freaking her out through the movie. And, you know, there's, like, long, unbroken shots of the living room. So, I don't know. Maybe it's symbolic of the corporations looking down on us. Could be. I, I did not notice that. All right. Well... Uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a taste of what we've been up to the last couple months. We've been uh, uh, laughing at uh, dramas in the theater and staring at giant eyeball lamps. So, uh, <laughs> and thinking about how much people look like Mark Ruffalo. That is what you've missed over the last two months from us. Aren't you glad to have us back, everybody? Um, so moving on from our movie reviews, we're going to go into um, what's kind of become our uh, our spotlight segment, where we uh, either spotlight a, uh, a an actor uh, or a filmmaker that we appreciate, or uh, or a film that we that we enjoy. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Kate Blanchett. We talked about uh, we talked about Ocean's Eight earlier, and. Um, she was one of the stars of that, and it gave us a chance to look back at her career. Um, in the past, we've looked at actors and talked about their greatest war performance. We're going to pr- approach it a little differently this time, and we're going to build the Mount Rushmore of Kate Blanchett. What are her most definable roles? What are her highest war performances? And the way we're going to do it is the three of us are each going to pick one that we're going to place up on Mount Rushmore that will be non-debatable. And then for the fourth one, we're going to open up a little bit of debate and see what we can come up with as a, as a consensus fourth, uh, fourth performance to put up there. Uh, I'll go ahead and start on this one. And um, I think this is not a, uh, a surprise for, for at least Todd, since he knows how much I love this performance. But the first uh, film going up, the first performance going up on Kate Blanchett's Mount Rushmore is her portrayal of Katherine Hepburn in The Aviator. Uh, this film was her first Oscar win and it showed just how much she is able to disappear into a role and into a character, especially when you are portraying someone that is, um, 
one, a real person, and two, someone who'd been in the public eye so much, and three, someone who had such a grandiose personality. Um, the fact that she was able to embody that personality of Katherine Hepburn in a way where she completely disappeared into the role shows just how great of an actress she is. So my film that I'm placing up on Mount Rushmore of Kate Blanchett is The Aviator. Zach, where do you want to go? Well, Kate Blanchett's an interesting actress. Um, I have to say I'm not the world's biggest Kate Blanchett fan. I, I'm looking over her body of work and... I mean, you know, we do our own little fun little Academy Awards of our own each year, and I don't think I've ever even nominated her. Um, I guess that's a little cold to say. I think she's a talented actress, and she's been in some good movies, but the closest that she's ever come to blowing me away in terms of a performance was probably her Oscar-winning, her other Oscar-winning performance for Blue Jasmine, uh, the Woody Allen film from 2013, in which she plays uh, a recently re uh, relocated uh, socialite, who, after the financial crash, has to move in with her sister and brother-in-law. And it's sort of Woody Allen's uh, modern retelling of, streetcar, of a streetcar named Desire, except with a few uh, alterations, a few more sort of modern twists to it. And she's really good in the film. I mean, she she manages to perfectly sort of blend the pathos of this like woefully aristocratic uh, character who's completely out of her sort of comfort zone um, because she doesn't have money anymore. I remember in particular a scene where she's sort of like talking about her ex-husband and this lavish life they live. And she and and Woody Allen does a funny thing. He's like showing her in this long monologue, and then he does a cut to these like two eight-year-old boys who are just like looking at her and trying to listen to her and trying to uh, understand and sympathize but it's clear that she's just sort of out of her out of her element so um, it's a performance that I think uh, it demonstrates her talent uh, to be both sympathetic but also a little bit wacky and unusual so for me it's uh, Blue Jasmine has to be on there not just because of the Oscar win but because it's a really good performance all right so the aviator is up there Blue Jasmine is up there the two Oscar wins are up there Todd what are you going to add uh, I'm going to add what I think is her best performance, and it's also her most underrated performance because nobody really calls it that great, and that's her performance as Daisy in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I think it's a performance that is definitely her hard, the hardest to replicate of any of them. She has the, the beauty and the grace of like a classic movie star, and she seems like, to me, the standout performance in the movie, even though she was ignored by most everybody at the time even in uh when two of her co-stars were actually nominated for it i don't know she gives the movie its charm and she keeps it grounded and she, i cannot picture another actress playing that part and so that's why that performance is my submission for mount rushmore all right so we have The Aviator, we have Blue Jasmine, we have The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It is now time to choose our fourth, uh, our fourth performance to go up there. Uh, do any of you have nominations you would like to, uh, to put forth? I know I have one. Why don't you Let go ahead, get... Terry? All right. So my nomination I'd like to put, uh, put forth is her performance as Bob Dylan in I'm Not There. Um, it, it, it is, it is a performance that I don't know who else could have possibly pulled off in the way she did. Um, and it is, it is an, just an incredible portrayal. I think it's, it's, an, it's amazing. 
so that's what I'm. That's the one I'm throwing out there. What about you guys? What do you think of that one? See, that's part of the problem I have with Kate Blanchett is that I think sometimes she's way over the top. Um, and I wasn't a fan of I'm Not There, and I guess the performance is interesting if you consider that it's just an androgynous performance, but I much prefer like Tilda Swinton in Orlando or something like that. I mean, it, to me, it kind of comes off as a gimmick, um, which is true of some of her other work, too. Like even, you know, like even uh, in Thor Ragnarok, I mean, she's just kind of yelling and screaming. I mean, a lot of people sort of um, mock the fact that she was nominated for an Oscar for Elizabeth the Golden Age, which was just a bunch of kind of screaming to the heavens. So um, the, the the performance I would nominate as as our fourth, um, and I think I, I would I, I'm pretty confident to say that Todd would agree with me here is uh, is in uh, Carol from 2015, where she plays the title character, who's uh, a, a closeted uh, lesbian um, in the 1950s. Uh, she's married, she has a daughter, and she sort of develops this tumultuous relationship with Rooney Mara over the course of the film. And while still struggling to maintain her identity, her identity as a mother and as um, a woman in in the community in in the 1950s. um, So that is a performance that I think has a lot more subtlety, a lot more richness, but it's also a better film, which I think is is a big reason why the performance sticks out more. Can I just say I am shocked that 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 was not Todd's submission yeah, I, to I, I'm, Rushmore off the top. Absolutely. I'm in agreement. I don't actually nominate her for that. Like I I think Rooney Mara steals the show in Carol, but uh, I don't know. I, I do like both of your guys' picks. Uh she has a lot of bad movies where she's really good in them and one of them was is uh Veronica Guerin, but I know that your net guys aren't gonna choose that, so they'll just be a wasted pick. It would. It would I, th- I think I think we have to say, should this be a performance that all three of us have seen? Well, then Probably. I th- I feel like there, that limits it considerably. But sure, I mean we I mean we could. It, it's the the two that we have out there right now. We could are ones that we could say all of us have seen. Yeah, this is our first time doing it. We're kind of coming up with the rules as we go along. Um, I, 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 would, I would choose. I'm oh, go ahead. There. Of the two, you would choose I'm Not There? Yeah. I mean, okay. she played Bob Dylan and Queen Elizabeth in the same year. Like, that's got to be pretty impressive. <laughs> that, is, that is impressive. Can well, I say prob- probably my favorite my favorite Kate Blanchett movie, and her performance has nothing to do with it, but my favorite Kate Blanchett movie is Bandits. Yeah, I actually just looked it up, and I've given her two nominations. One was for The Aviator, and the other one was for Bandits. So... I'd be okay with that, too. I would be okay with Bandits because I think she gives the best performance in that movie in an otherwise somewhat forgettable movie, but she's really good in that movie. She has great chemistry with Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis. Oh, I don't think, I don't think it's, an, it's a forgettable movie. I love that movie. It's one of those, it's one of those just like guilty pleasure movies. I say we go Bandits. Bandits? The one that none of us submitted. I like it. The one of us, that, <laughs> yes, yes. We're setting good precedent here. We'll Adam get all our ideas out of the way, and then we'll just pick something else. <laughs> all right, so there we go. Our, our Mount Rushmore of Cape Blanchett performances. Uh, the Aviator, um, whatever Zach said, Blue Jasmine. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, the, the Curious <laughs> Case of Benjamin movie. Button, and Bandits. All right. It is now time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power rankings. 
Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Uh, it has been a while since we've done this, but it, to remind everyone the way this works is we pick a category and we uh, come up with our top fives. And each time we have a competition of uh, who can best select our friend Adam's top five of whatever, uh, whatever category we come up with. And whoever correctly or most correctly picks his top five gets to pick the topic for the next time. So two months ago, the last time we recorded, uh, Todd won the competition. And he has chosen a topic for us. So Todd, why don't you inform us uh, what we're going to be talking about here? Okay, so uh, the, the category I chose was the top five scenes that involve coffee. And because... It was, it's a, an article that I wanted to write for a long time, and I think it's just as arbitrary as eating a bunch of caramels, but uh, we could also just do a top five Tarantino coffee scenes or scenes from Diner, but uh, we'll see what we all come up with. <laughs> okay, so, um, Zach, why don't you start us out with this one? Give us your number five coffee scene. Well, just to be clear, these are also the top five coffee scenes that were not in Fargo, right? Oh, yes, of course, of course. That is the other thing. We cannot pick anything from Fargo. Is there any coffee in Fargo? That's a great question. There, There's night crawlers. Th- that's true. That's true. Norm made some eggs. That, that That's true, too. Well, <laughs> um, so uh, my number five um, coffee scene, when I was thinking about coffee, you know, um, I thought about scenes that had a significant role in the film and where there's actually coffee, okay? Because when I came up, uh, when I was starting to think about this list, there were several scenes that I thought, oh, this would work great. And then I actually went back and looked at them and they were not drinking coffee. It was like water or sometimes alcohol or sometimes a vague sort of tea-ish drink. And so if it wasn't definitively coffee, I did not put it on my list. I hope both of you were that rigorous and disciplined with your selections. But my number five pick comes from The Rock from 1996, directed by Michael Bay. And this is the scene when uh, John Mason has been... um captured and put into the prison and put into the interrogation booth and Stanley Goodspeed comes in to try to give him this offer to work with the FBI to break into Alcatraz. It's the it's the famous line where he says, I'm Stanley Goodspeed. Why, of course you are. And so uh, in that scene, he uh, offers him coffee. Actually, it's sort of funny because um, Nicolas Cage sort of declines coffee from him. And then he says, oh, wait, I was supposed to offer you coffee, right? And uh, they drink coffee and talk about famous political prisoners like Solzhenitsyn and uh, Sir Walter Raleigh uh, before Sean Connery breaks the glass and says, Womack, you bastard. That's my number five coffee scene. I think you picked it just so you could say Womack, you bastard. Womack. I may have done it in San Francisco, Jade. That wasn't actually what he says in that scene. He goes, Womack, I knew it was you, you piece of shit. Yeah, well, th- <laughs> thank you, Todd, for that clarification. Uh, all right, Todd, number five. Uh, my number five comes from Pulp Fiction. It is the first and last scene. Everybody calls so rubbery. Uh, it is the crazy, coked-out energy of Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth that make this scene so awesome, and it sets the tone for the entire movie, and then also brings it home with a shift in tone for where it actually goes after that. Uh, in the final scene, you see the whole movie come together. It's a brilliant scene when they're just, like, sitting there in a diner, drinking coffee. Coffee! 
That's my number five. I need some coffee. Garçon. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Um, so in coming up with this with this list, I, I went online and looked at some. There are actually several people that have done lists like this before, just to kind of get some ideas and some references. And one that I uh, a movie that kept on being referenced is uh, my number five, but not for a scene that kept on being referenced. My number five is Zoolander. Um, with uh, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson, and uh, the scene that everyone everyone wanted to put on the list was a scene with uh, with Mugatu played by Will Ferrell, and he like spits it out and, and right in his assistant's face. But the scene I'm going with is Orange Mocha Frappuccino, and they go and they uh, and uh, Zoolander needed cheering up, so his roommates, who are also brilliant male models go and uh, take him to Starbucks to get orange mocha frappuccinos. And while they're drinking them, they stop to get gas and decide to have a, uh, a uh, gasoline fight. And then someone lights a cigarette and they all blow up and die. That is my number five. <laughs> Very nice. It's a great choice. All right, Zach, number four. Uh- all right, well, my number four pick is I can't have any power rankings without a reference to a French sex film. So I'm going with Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, the coffee scene at the end of the film when uh, Adele and uh, Emma are meeting up, this has been years after their initial sexual relationship. And uh, Emma ha- now has a family. Adele still reveals that uh, she's lonely and misses her. And... Um, Oh boy, kids out there, you might want to cover your ears what happens next, but let's just say that it goes into some very uh, adult territory at the coffee table, which is really interesting because there seems to be people in the background, but as this is France, I don't I don't think anyone cares really what, what happens, but uh, it's a great sort of uh, culmination to the film, and uh, it's a great film, um, and it's a great coffee scene. It isn't just about coffee, shall we say. Okay. All right, we've had the obligatory uh, French uh, reference here. So, Todd, go for it. Number four. Okay, my number four comes from a movie that is about coffee and cigarettes. Coffee and cigarettes. Uh, the Jim Jarmusch uh, anthology I you, movie. I see what you did there, Todd. Well Nicely done. done. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, chose the... There are a lot of scenes to choose from, obviously, but I chose Bill Murray and the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, they're sitting in some, like... French cafe, and uh, the Wu-Tang Clan is sitting there talking about uh, how caffeine is bad and how it uh, gives you delirium, and then uh, Bill Murray is the waiter, and he actually is playing Bill Murray, and there's like like that awkward conversation, and then he sits down, and he says, oh, well, delirium must be my problem, and then he drinks the coffee straight out of the pot, and uh, they're just sitting there talking trash to each other, uh, Bill Murray, Rizza, and Jizza. Uh, it's a great scene and uh, a pretty good movie too. Yeah, there are a lot of scenes that you could pick from that movie, but that probably is the best the best one that involves coffee and cigarettes. I've not seen that movie. I probably should. Okay. Number four on my list is Mulholland Drive. Uh, this is a scene that comes up fairly early on in the in the movie where uh, the uh, filmmaker played by Justin Thoreau was trying to get his movie made, and he goes before uh, some producers or this uh, at least this group of people that seem to have control and tell him who must star in his movie. And um, a part of this scene is 
the uh, the guy that they're all there to talk to to uh, get the approval of who is going to be the star of his movie. They have done uh, extensive research to make sure that he has the greatest cappuccino in the world um, for this meeting, or else the meeting is a failure. And he uh, he gets his glass of cappuccino and he takes a sip and then he promptly spits it out into a napkin and it like oozes all over the table and immediately walks out of the room and says, we're done. Um, and they're like, no, but that, that was a very highly rated cup of coffee. It, it's such a strange and bizarre and unsettling uh, scene that helps set the tone for such a strange, bizarre, unsettling movie. So number four is Mulholland Drive. Outstanding choice. Yeah, I agree. Actually, there are a few coffee scenes in that movie, if I remember correctly. Oh, there are. Yeah, there there could have been some other ones picked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all like right. the, all those scenes in the in the diner or whatever. Yeah. See, that's initially where I thought you were going with that were, were the diner scenes, but I'd sort of forgotten about that other one. Yeah. All right. Zach, number three. All right, number three is a film that I, I suspect might make appearance on other lists too, and that is Reservoir Dogs. I don't know how you can talk about coffee scenes without the opening sequence of Reservoir Dogs. Um, you could maybe characterize it as a sequence or a scene, but the part that I like the best is when they debate uh, the art of tipping the waitress. Um, and what's so great about this scene is that it reveals a lot about the characters. We don't know their names, we don't know their identities, it's the first five minutes of the movie, but immediately we know that Mr. Pink is a douchebag because he's a poor tipper. We know that Mr. White is very sympathetic to the plight of people, and this, of course, plays into the uh, movie later. And we know that uh, nice guy Eddie and uh, Joe just want to kind of get along with their business and, you know, stop acting like a bunch of broads. Um, it's a great scene. Uh, it's some of Tarantino's best dialogue. Frankly, I, I don't love Reservoir Dogs. I'll watch, like, the first ten minutes of it, and then I'll go to the ear-cutting scene, and that's basically it. But the coffee scene is sublime and fantastic it is an amazing scene it, nope. it is it is a it is a scene that when i first thought of it, it was the first scene that came to mind and then when i put together my list i had forgotten about it so it didn't make it no coffee power rankings is complete without it Let's i know just be honest. i i know how many times does he need his cup of coffee filled isn't it five six times? five or six? six which seems ridiculous but i, I was thinking it was like seven <laughs> we should bet on this <laughs> we should give us odds Todd <laughs> well seven seems a little ridiculous but that seems right I would give myself like plus odds like plus 175 for that I think it's five I'm going five I'm saying six even money on six plus 120 on because they came by they came by like twice or three times and he wanted it five okay I will try and find this answer Todd give us your number three all right, my number three comes from a film franchise that I love, and uh, that is Before Sunrise. Uh, Jesse and Celine uh, are sitting in a restaurant drinking coffee, and uh, they decide they're going to do this little role-playing thing where they make fake phone calls to their roommates telling them how they uh, fell for some random stranger on a train and how they won't be home to, for their plans, and they use it as a device to like flirt with each other and tell them how they feel indirectly. And it's just a brilliant scene uh, by Richard Linklater, and one of the many reasons uh, that we began to love Jesse and Celine. It was earlier in the movie. It's a, it's a great scene. And is this in the days when Ethan Hawke was uh, happier in movies? You think? 
uh, he was more hopeful. That absolutely makes sense. I think Terry's stuck on uh, Reservoir Dogs. I am, Reservoir Dogs I am, still. I am. All right, he's, I'll he's find He's stuck it. in the middle of Reservoir Dogs. I'm st- <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, I'll find, I'll find a little bit. Okay, so uh, number three, that's one, the one we're on, right? Number three? Yes. Number three. Number three for, uh, for me is going to be La La Land. And this is really kind of a culmination of two different scenes, one that takes place at the beginning and one that takes place at the end. Um, Emma Stone's character... Uh, while she's trying to make it in Hollywood, works at a coffee shop um, on one of the studio lots. And um, while she's there, she serves uh, several big-time actresses. And um, it kind of sets the stage for who she is and where she's at. And one of the most fulfilling scenes of the whole movie (coughs) is at the end, when she is able to go back to that coffee shop as the big Hollywood star and um, see the people that are in the shoes that she was just in. And um, it gives her an opportunity to see where she was and see how far she's come. Uh, And it it really kind of encapsulates a lot of what that movie is all about in just kind of one scene and really just like one glance that you see from Emma Stone as she walks into the room. So I'm going number three, La La Land. I'd completely forgotten about that. I remember that she gets a coffee stand on her shirt, and that's when she sings her her song. Yeah, there's 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 that. That's like the end of the scene at the beginning. Nice pick. Okay, so moving on to number two, uh, I'm going with another Tarantino film, um, and that is Jackie Brown. Uh, and the particular coffee scene in Jackie Brown occurs around the, maybe the, the two-fifths mark of the film after uh, Jackie has been released from prison. This is the night, uh, the morning after uh, she returns to her apartment. Ordell has stopped by and has threatened her, but she sort of turned the tables. And so in this sequence, uh, Max Cherry, her bail bondsman, comes by and they have a cup of coffee. And in typical Tarantino style, it's just spectacular dialogue. Um, at first, they sort of talk about, uh, you know, work working for Odell, being his uh, money runner, essentially, uh, for for Jackie. But then the conversation drifts to uh, getting older. And she says, Max, you know, are you afraid of getting old? And he sort of talks a little bit about aging. And then she basically has this great speech about how it's much scarier for her to grow older uh, with no money and no prospects than the prospect of going to prison for double-crossing Odell. And it's all over coffee, um, and it's a great scene. Just great acting, uh, class a Tarantino scene. Yeah, that's a good pick. Uh, my number two is uh, the famous scene in Heat between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. I couldn't even tell you exactly what they were talking about, but it's more—it's like basically like a power display pissing contest between the cop and the mastermind robber. Uh, it's just a scene that's fascinating to watch Pacino and De Niro share the screen for the very first time. It was because of that scene that I actually went to go see Righteous Kill in the theater. And so that makes it, uh, that shows how special it was. But yeah, I mean, I couldn't think that I could make the list without that scene. It's one of the best scenes ever. That, that is, those are both good choices. Are you ready for the answer to our question? I found it before I reveal my number two. Yeah. Mr. Pink says, look, I ordered coffee. Now we've been here a long time, and she's only filled my cup three times. When I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Oh. 
To which Mr. Blonde says six times, well, what if she's too busy? Mr. Pink says, the words too busy shouldn't be in the waitress's vocabulary. And Nice Guy Eddie says, excuse me, Mr. Pink, but I think the last thing you need is another cup of coffee. I bleeped that quite a bit as I quoted it. Anyways, so, uh, Zach. I, put I should get the right odds on that. I should get a point for that. You, uh, you get the Christmas turkey. Um, Start applying. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. All right. Uh, my number two is The Usual Suspects. This scene takes place near the end of the film um, where uh, Verbal Kent has been um, interrogated for a long time about the crimes that have uh, occurred with his group of criminals. And, um, and as he leaves, Chaz Palminteri, who is the detective, um, starts to look around his, his office and determine that everything he has just heard is a lie. And the last, uh, the last shot of that realization is him dropping his coffee cup and the coffee cup shatters, the coffee goes everywhere, and the last clue is on the bottom of the coffee cup. Uh, so, usual suspects, number two. But he didn't like ask it. for coffee six times, though. He did not ask for coffee six times. He However, was picking in, cocoa beans in Guatemala, though. Yes, yes, yes. Wasn't it, wasn't it Kobayashi that was on the bottom of the coffee? I think it was Kobayashi that was on the bottom yeah. of the coffee cup. Yeah. yeah. Way to spoil the movie, Terry. It doesn't give you anything. It's been 23 and, years, man. And spoiler alert, it's been 23 years. <laughs> See the usual suspects. I think we know it's who amazing. Kaiser Show I think we know who Kaiser Soja is at this point. Obviously, it's Benicio del Toro. Yes, <laughs> obviously. Well, why'd you got to go and do that? <laughs> All right, number one. <clears throat> All right, well, when Todd told us about this uh, crazy power rankings, there was only one film that was always going to be my number one. It's the film that, when I think coffee scene, it drifts imme immediately to my mind. It's the best sequence in the film, and that film is Heat, uh, with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino sharing uh, scant little screen time together, both in their careers and in the film. But in this middle section of the film, they finally meet up face-to-face. -face. Even Pacino says, yeah, we met face-to-face. -face. Actually, I think De Niro says that. Um, and in this bravura nine- or ten-minute sequence, uh, they talk about their careers, they talk about their aspirations, they talk about women... Pacino says that he's on his, his third marriage. He's got a daughter, a stepdaughter who's messed up, and uh, you know uh, he said he. And De Niro says, "Yeah, I got a woman." And then Pacino says, "What are you a monk?" Um, some great crisp dialogue throughout, uh, and uh, it's the only time in the movie they really meet up. Um, I think the two characters are kind of similar in the sense that they both take their jobs probably more seriously than the other people that they work with. Uh, and it's, uh, the best scene in the film. It's a really good film overall. I think the last hour is sort of drifts in and out of ridiculous situations, like when, uh, Pacino, you know, grabs the TV and starts throwing it around on the city street. But that, for that 10 minutes, it's cinematic bliss and it's a great, uh, coffee scene. So heat is my number one. Uh, Todd, why don't you give us your number one? Okay. My number one is a 
scene from a movie that I really love, and I'm not entirely sure they're actually drinking coffee. Sorry, Zach. Uh, but uh, I went with it anyway. It appears that they're at a diner, and I'm pretty sure they're drinking coffee. It is uh, the scene that explains the title of Chasing Amy. Uh, it's the best scene that Kevin Smith has ever written. It's the first time that Silent Bob talks, and he goes on a monologue about how he dated this girl named Amy and how the situation is so similar to Holden and what he's going through with Alyssa. And, like, Holden is just, like, sitting there shocked that Silent Bob's actually talking. Jay just wants to smoke the giant joint that he just rolled, and uh, Silent Bob is just, like, going off on this this really touching story. And... uh, it was back when Kevin Smith actually wrote good movies and wasn't, like, directing overproduced studio garbage like he does now. And, but, this is an amazing scene, and the re- main reason why it's on my top ten of 1997. All right. I hadn't even thought about that scene. It's a great choice. I hadn't either. It's been way too long since I've seen that movie. I'd say the same thing for Heat, too. It's been way too long since I've seen Heat. Um, so I couldn't include those. My number one... Um, my number one, they are not drinking coffee, but that's kind of the point because my number one is Glen Gary, Glen Ross coffee is for closers. And I think I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> that's all you need to say. That's all you need to say. What are you doing? Coffee's for closers. Put that coffee down. There we go. There we go. All right, so uh, let's recap, and then we'll uh, we'll see how we did with uh, with Adam's list. So we got honorable mentions too. Well, yeah, oh, honorable, honorable, mentions. honorable mentions. I bet. Let's do uh, let's do honorable mentions first. Zach, give us honorable mentions. Yeah, I mean, in some way, my honorable mentions are more interesting than my actual <laughs> list. Um, I really want to include some of these. So, uh, in alphabetical order, almost famous, the scene with Lester Bang meeting up with young William Miller. Um, be honest and unmerciful. Great scene. Apollo 13, Jim Lovell talking about the Apollo 1 disaster with his son. I believe they're drinking. he's drinking coffee. Uh, yeah, he's got a cup of coffee. Yes. Uh, Clueless, the scene where Cher and Dion talk to Mr. <clears throat> Hall and give him their mochaccino. And Cher says, I don't drink this. I, it would stop my growth. And I want to be 5'10 like Cindy Crawford. And then Mr. Hall goes eats and, and drinks it with Miss Geist. Great scene. Inside Lewin Davis, which actually has two really good coffee scenes. But the one I would choose would be the one where Lewin meets with the Carrie Mulligan character. And they're in a restaurant. And she t- calls him uh, stupid. And uh, he sees the cat running down the street great scene and then finally you've got mail uh the scene where tom hanks uh meets with meg ryan he knows that uh they've been corresponding online but she doesn't know it and uh he takes that to his advantage and it's very funny all right those are great choices all of them todd what do you got okay i got a few honorable mentions too i got uh I don't tip from Reservoir Dogs. Uh, And then in Pulp Fiction, the scene at Jimmy's house where he uh, makes his gourmet coffee. Uh, Coffee is for closers, of course. Uh, Then in Goodfellas, the the scene where Stax gets whacked. Uh, There's definitely coffee being made in that scene. Uh, uh, This coffee smells like... From uh, Austin Powers. Uh, and um, in Zack and Mary make a porno when uh, Katie Morgan and Jason Mewes are having their scene uh, uh, a Steelers fan wanders in and he's like do you see the game? Roethlisberger's all fuck it, huck it, chuck it football all night and the whole scene takes place in the coffee shop that they work in and they are like pouring coffee beans over them as they're having sex on the counter 
Wow. How is that scene not in your top five? I don't know. It could have been. Sounds pretty spectacular. <laughs> Uh, all right, so some of some of my honorable mentions have been mentioned. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, I already talked about that a little bit. Pulp Fiction, I was thinking of uh, Jimmy's House uh, when I put that on there. Uh, I have Almost Famous on my honorable mention. Uh, the scene with um, with William Miller and Lester Bangs is much better, but uh, what I the the one that I thought of um, before we were talking about this, someone mentioned that that sideways doesn't have any coffee and I'm like, well, does almost famous. And the first thing I thought of is, uh, is Anna Paquin laying in, laying in the bed with her mouth being covered up while William Miller is on the phone with Ben Fong Tories. And as soon as he lets it off, she goes, I need some coffee. And so that, that was a, that was what I was thinking of there. Um, a very forgettable film, but the one thing I remember about it, the bucket list. Uh, Jack Nicholson talks about his coffee and it's like made from like regurgitated like feces from monkeys or something like that. Um, and uh, the last one, uh, just to get a get an MCU reference in there, the one uh, the one scene that I actually laughed at in Thor was when he has his cup of coffee in the diner and goes, "This is amazing! I want another!" And he throws the cup on the ground. <laughs> Everyone freaks out at him. He goes, "I didn't mean any disrespect," but uh, yeah. So uh, those are my honorable mentions. Awesome. Good choices. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's recap, and then we'll look at look at Adam's list. So Zach, give me five to one. Uh, number five is The Rock. Number four is Blue is the warmest color. Three is Reservoir Dogs. Two is Jackie Brown, and number one is Heat. All right, Todd. And uh, five uh, from Pulp Fiction. Four was from Coffee and Cigarettes. Three was from Before Sunrise. Two was from Heat, and one was from Chasing Amy. And for me, number five, Zoolander. Number four, Mulholland Drive. Number three, La La Land. Number two, The Usual Suspects. And number one, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. I find it really interesting just how much diversity we had in those lists, uh, even though there are some pretty iconic scenes that are out there. Apparently, okay. there, there were no coffee scenes prior to 1993 in the movies. Uh, apparently, apparently. Kevin, Kevin Smith and uh, Tarantino loved their coffee. Exactly. Okay, so let's now look at Adam's list. He has sent his list to me. I have not looked at it, but we're going to try and predict what is on his list. Uh, Todd, why don't you start? Okay, for number five, I have, uh, hey, Peter, what's happening uh, in office space? Like basically any any, uh, any scene with Lumberg. Uh, Four, I have uh, when Cobb is sitting at that cafe in Ariadna's dream in Inception. Uh, and then uh, number three, I have Kobayashi's cup from uh, The Usual Suspects. Two, I have uh, when the coffee is spilled on Georgette in Amelie. And number one, uh, the fake orgasm scene from When Harry Met Sally. Oh, that's a good one, mm. too. Those are good good choices. Okay, uh, I'll go next. My number five is Heat, uh, the scene that we've been talking about. Number four is the opening scene to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, number three is Pulp Fiction. I'm just going to say any of the scenes that we've mentioned. Uh, number two is I Don't Tip from Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Coffee is for Closers. All right. My number five was Godzilla, 
the scene where Jean Reynaud complains about French coffee. Uh, number four is Mulholland Drive. Three, Reservoir Dogs. Two, Pulp Fiction. And one, Glengarry Glen Ross. Okay. Moment of truth. I took way more stabs than you guys did. You guys went with like the ones that we just talked about. Yep. Okay. So we have for um, for uh, honorable mention, uh, usual suspects. Um, the reveal. He says, uh, Thor, the opening of Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, aliens making coffee and Men in Black. And Amelie. That's his honorable mention. Ah, there's two of mine gone. <clears throat> uh, number five is the tipping scene in Reservoir Dogs. Number four, I want a large from Role Models. Oh. Okay. Number three, the phone conversation in Before Sunrise. Number two, the diner scene in Heat. And number one, Jimmy's Gourmet Coffee in Pulp Fiction. I got zero. I got two. I got, let's see, I got Pulp Fiction, I got Reservoir Dogs, and I got Heat. I got three! I can't believe you didn't have one Harry Met Sally. He is like the biggest champion of that movie. And no Glengarry Glenn Ross? Come on. No Glengarry Glenn Ross. And then the other one I had, on, I had was on his honorable mentions, so... There we go. I am the champion. I get to pick our next uh, our next power rankings topic. I like it. I'll take it. Okay. So the, that is our power rankings for uh, for this time. It is now time to hop into probably my favorite segment always because I don't have to do anything other than tell you guys how stupid you are, and that is Oscar's trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. He's going to beat me every time. Oscar trivia. Uh, for this one, I've chosen a year of Academy Awards, and uh, well, you guys are going to... Well, wait a second. Before we go into that, I, I have a film that I've watched Oh, that's right. Losing the last Oscar trivia. That's true. We're a little rusty in all of this, so we're <laughs> getting back into what we need to do. So, that's right. Zach has a review for us of a movie that Todd forced him to watch. Um, and, uh, Zach, I think you just watched this yesterday, correct? Correct. It's fresh in my mind. Fresh in your mind. You didn't watch it like two months ago and now we're finally reporting on it. So the film that Todd made me watch was Deadfall from 2012, uh, with Eric Bana and Olivia Wilde. I'm not really sure why Todd That was not the movie I wanted you to watch. What? I wanted you to watch Deadfall, the Nicolas Cage movie. Wait a second. I watched Deadfall with Eric Bana. I've never even seen that. (laughs) (laughs) Why, why would I make you watch that? I, like, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of thinking along like, oh, I could kind of see this being a Todd movie. What's Deadfall with Nicolas Cage? I've never even heard of it. That's the one where, it, like, in uh, in the Nicolas Cage losing his video, that is like, I don't know, the most prominent one. I don't even see it on IMDb, dude. Where is what year Nin- is it? Nineteen ninety three. It's the second <laughs> one listed. <laughs> He's not even the main actor listed in it. I like that. Well, well, what am I supposed to do with Deadfall with Eric Bana, man? I, I don't know. I say, I, I say, I say, it. report on Deadfall with Eric Bana. <laughs> this is this is a and first then, for the podcast. This That's is a first. Sure. This is a first. 
<laughs> How did this not come up? <laughs> We've had two months to spew on this. Well, I told you back then that that was a movie I wanted you to watch. Dude. <laughs> well, at first I thought Deadfall was the one with the Nazi vampires, but then that that's not that's called Dead something else. But... Dead Snow. Dead Snow, yeah. Okay, well, why don't you tell us about the Deadfall you did watch, and then when we come back for our next I podcast... I mean, I even, I even texted you about this, Todd, yesterday. I was like, Deadfall, wow, man, quite a movie. I know, well, that would have fit for the atrocity that is the <laughs> yeah. Nicolas Cage movie, too. Well, the Eric Bana Deadfall is pretty bad, too. Um, it's, all, it's all about these this brother and sister that rob a casino in, like, North Dakota or something in the middle of Thanksgiving, and then they get separated, and uh, they all end up at the Thanksgiving dinner run by Chris Christopherson and Sissy Spacek, and then there's a big shootout at the end. I, I thought you chose it because of, like, how laughably bad it was. Um, and it was, it was by the director of uh, The Counterfeiters, the, the Oscar winner from, like, 2007 in foreign film. <laughs> it does sound like an intriguing movie. I know, and it was a total Todd movie. I mean, it, you know, it was like, I mean, no offense, Todd, but it was like in the so bad it's good, like over the top, like violent, like nastiness. I mean, it was pretty awesome. Well, awesomely bad. I think you need to watch this movie now. I was going to say, I think if Zach wins this, I think I know what movie Todd is watching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and win or lose, Zach, you are uh, you are watching the right Deadfall, and we'll re- be reporting on it uh, on the next podcast. Yeah, you know, it's we- the movie where Nick Nick Cage is like freaking out on the bed, and where he's like, "What am I, a retard man?" You know. I that's... thought that was Vampire's Kiss. No, no, that's Vampire's when he reads Kiss. the alphabet. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well. Wow. We do so much pre-planning on this podcast, you know. Well, how many stars do you give the Deadfall you watched? Uh, two. It was definitely in the so bad it's good category. Okay. I want to well, see what you thought, what you think of it, Todd. Though, it, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I could see you kind of liking it for its campiness. <laughs> All right. <sighs> this is amazing. <laughs> the wrong Deadfall. Yeah. Well, and that was one of my complaints. It's like that's like the most bland title in uh, movie history. <laughs> At, at this point, I, I think people are starting to wonder why why we uh, don't keep our uh, hiatus going. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's see uh, let's see what's going to happen uh, this time around. So I have chosen a year for you guys, and that year is 1994. So we are looking at the 1994 Oscars. And a quick reminder to everyone, when we say 1994 Oscars, we're talking about the films from 1994 that were honored at the Oscar ceremony that took place at the beginning of 1995. Understood? Everybody good? Absolutely. Okay, so Todd, you were our last winner. Would you like to go first or second? Uh, I'll go first. <clears throat> okay. So, the, uh, really quick, the, uh, the points are gathered. Uh, if someone cannot uh, come up with the answer, the other person gets a point. If uh, that person is able to finish out the category, they get a point for every uh, nominee they get after the other person has gone out. Um, and if someone is not able to come up with the winner in a category... The other person can gain, uh, as the first choice, the other person can gain a point by coming up with the winner out of order. Sound about right? Yes. 
for everything I remember. Okay, Todd, 1994 Best Picture. Uh, Forrest Gump. That is correct. Zach. The Shawshank Redemption. Correct. Pulp Fiction. Correct. Bullets Over Broadway. Incorrect. Ah. Todd gets a point. Todd, finish out the category if you can. Quiz Show and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Those are both correct. And Todd takes a commanding 3-0 lead after Best Picture. I don't think that's ever happened before. Um, Zach, going to you now. Best Actor. Tom Hanks and Forrest Gump. Correct. Uh, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Correct. Nigel Hawthorne in The Madness of King George. Correct. Uh, Morgan Freeman in Shawshank. Correct. Uh, I give up. I don't know. Todd gets another point. Todd, do you have it? Uh, Paul Newman and Nobody's Fool. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Score is now five to nothing. Todd, you start off on Best Actress. Jessica Lange in Blue Sky. Correct. Jodie Foster in Nell. Correct. Uh, Winona Ryder in Little Women. Correct. Susan Sarandon in The Client. Correct. Miranda Richardson in Tom and Viv. That is correct. Ran the category. Going back to Zach. Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Martin Landau and Ed Wood. Correct. Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Correct. Gary Sinise in Forrest Gump. Correct. Uh, Paul Schofield in Quiz Show. Correct. Chaz Palminteri, Bullets Over Broadway. Correct. We just ran another category. You guys are on a roll now. Uh, Todd first, Best Supporting Actress. Rachel Weisz in Bullets Over Broadway. Not Rachel Weisz, no. Uh, Diana Weiss. Oh, man, you caught that. You caught that good. I was about to call you out for the whole category. That is correct. Because everyone confuses Diane Weist and Rachel Weisz. <laughs> Their names are similar. I, I wrote sloppy on the page. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Zach. Uma Thurman and Pulp Fiction. Correct. World Series of Poker bracelet winner Jennifer Tilly in Bulls of Broadway. That is correct. That's an interesting fact. Um... Uh, Sally Field and Forrest Gump? Incorrect. Todd gets a point. Todd, you have the other two. Uh, uh, Rosemary Harris and Tom and Viv. That is correct. And um, Helen Mirren and Madness King George? That is correct as well. All right. Savage. The, the score is now eight to nothing. And we are moving on to Best Director. And who gets this one first? Who, is, who uh, led off Supporting Actress? Oh, Todd did. Todd, yeah, that's right. Todd said, Todd said Diane, Diane Weist, Rachel Weiss, whatever. 
So, best director, Zach, you're first. Uh, now World Series of Poker winner, uh, Robert Zemeckis for, 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 uh, for uh, Forrest Gump. I almost said correct. four weddings and a funeral. That would have been bad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, Tarantino Todd. for Pulp Fiction. Correct. Uh, Robert Redford for Quiz Show. Correct. Uh, Kieslowski for Red. Correct. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> Um, it wasn't Darabont. Uh, Woody Allen, Bullets Over Broadway. That is correct. All right. Now moving on to screenplays. Best original screenplay. We're going back to Todd for this one. Pulp Fiction. Correct. Uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Correct. Bullets Over Broadway. That is correct. Red. Correct. Yeah, I don't know. Zach, you get a point. Do you know the answer? Uh, 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 no. Okay. I, I, w- I would have been really impressed if one of you had come up with Heavenly Creatures. Ooh, Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson film. All right. Last category here. Best adapted screenplay. Zach, you are first. Forrest Gump. That's correct. Quiz Show. Correct. The Shawshank Redemption. Correct. Little Women. Incorrect. Zach, you get another point. Do you have the other two? Uh, the Madness of King George. That is correct. And Tom and Viv. That seems pretty popular. Nope. Nope. You went with the uh, with the wrong acting uh, nomination. Nobody's fool. Ah. Uh. All right. Well, with the score of eight to three. Todd has uh, has triumphed over Zach once again. Hey, and, why don't you uh, ask uh, what the winners were for best sound and sound effects editing? Because I know those. Oh, Do you yeah, know those, well, Todd? It was uh, my number one movie of 1994. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Speed. Pop quiz hot shot. Not directed by Rachel Weisz. Not directed by Rachel Weisz. And she didn't win a World Series of Poker bracelet either. No, she didn't. So I think my punishment is going, you have to watch the actual Deadfall twice. Twice? <laughs> nice. Uh, or wow. you, could just, you could just come up with another movie for him, and he'll have to report on both. Okay. Or okay, you can I- come up with a movie for me. I mean, that, that's the other option there. That's you have true. to force one of us to watch a movie. Well, Zach still has to watch the other Deadfall, so... I'll come up with something for you to watch. Okay, sounds good. All right, we are uh, just about done with our with our podcast for today. But our last thing we want to leave you with is our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard. Quote of the day. Uh, I'm going to start out on this one. Uh, my quote comes from my number five coffee scene movie, Zoolander. 
And uh, this quote takes place immediately following the, uh, the scene that I mentioned earlier where they, uh, they went and got orange mocha frappuccinos. And this is uh, Derek Zoolander speaking at his, uh, at his friend's funeral. And he says this, Rufus, Brint, and Mikis were like brothers to me. And when I say brother, I don't mean like an actual brother, but I mean it like the way black people use it, which is more meaningful, I think. If there's anything that this horrible tragedy can teach us, it's that a male's, male model's life is a precious, precious commodity. Just because we have chiseled abs and stunning features, it doesn't mean that we too can't not die in a freak gasoline fight accident. There you go. That was some Frank Caliendo impersonation, level impersonation there. Oh, was it good? Was it good? I was trying, I was trying to, be a, to be as Zoolander-esque as possible. All right, Zach. Well, my quote comes from my number one coffee film, uh, Heat. And it's a scene, uh, probably the second uh, most classic scene in the film, when uh, Al Pacino has confronted the Hank Azaria character. That's right, he's in Heat, in case you forgot. And I think he's having, the Hank Azaria character is having an affair with Ashley Judd, who's married to Val Kilmer. It's all very incestuous. But, uh, you know, Hank Azaria is sort of, you know, in a down state. He says, why did I get up, why did I get mixed up with that woman? And then Al Pacino's answer is, because she's got a great ass, and you got your head all the way up it. Uh, that was a good Pacino. That was a good Pacino. All right, Todd. All right, mine comes from my number one coffee scene. Uh, it's a Silent Bob quote. He just is asked by Jay, like, why he never knew about Amy, because he's around him all the time. He's like, bitch, well, you don't know about me. I could just about fit in the Grand fucking Canyon. Like, did you know I always wanted to be a dancer in Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> I need to watch more classic Kevin Smith. I think that's what I've I've gathered from this podcast. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, that is our podcast. It is good to be back. Um, we are going to try and get back on a roll of uh, giving you a new podcast about every other week, uh, giving you the latest on what's going on in movies, and also giving you uh, some of the latest of whatever seems to be rolling through our brain. Um, but thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you tune in next time, and we will catch you later. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.